0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware.
1: Hey, this is Dure, and welcome to Bate of the People. Now, there's was a bonus episode this week that just focused on Charlottesville. You should check it out. Talked to some student leaders at UVA who were incredible, and then Terry McAuliffe joined again. Now, this is the regular episode of Pod Save the People this week. It is me, Clint, Brittany, and Sam with the news, and it's the award-winning actor, singer, and activist, Common. And then we also have Nathaniel Perman, who joins us to talk about the resistance dashboard. Now, before we get into this episode... I'll acknowledge that I know that this is a trying time and that there are a lot of reasons why people have doubts. Doubts about the future. Doubts about if there's an opportunity to make progress. But what I know to be true is that hope is a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. And that hope is a necessary but not sufficient aspect of the work. But without hope, it's hard to build. Without hope, it's hard to dream. When I think about what freedom is, freedom is not only the absence of oppression, but it's a presence of justice and joy. Hope gets us there. Let's go. And now the news with me, Clint, the resident academic, Brittany, former member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force in 21st Century Policing, and Sam,
2: your favorite data scientist. Here we go.
3: It's the news. Hey, y'all. This is Brittany Packnett. I'm Miss Pack Yeti on all social media. Mrs.
2: this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter.
4: What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith. That's Clint Smith the Third. Duray, Clint Smith-
1: <laughs> I I I on Twitter. All right, Clint Smith. I I I though all of y'all. Um that's how the third shows up on Twitter. You should follow Clint. Clint's great. I I I. And this is Dre. Um, I'm Dre D-E-R-E-Y, on Twitter. So on this episode of Posse of the People, we're gonna, the news is gonna exclusively focus on Charlottesville. As we know, in the past, uh, 48 hours, 72 hours, there have been a group of white supremacists who descended on, on Charlottesville, the town and the campus of UVA, bringing, bringing an ideology of hatred and violence. Uh, to the campus Uh, yesterday released a bonus pod that had interviews with uh, student leaders at UVA and the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe joined us again on the podcast. I'm interested to see um, what we all have to say here because we've not spoken about it. Uh, separately, This will be our first time having this conversation. I, I, I will just uh, open up the conversation by saying that as someone who has been in many cities and started in Ferguson, I often know that there's a difference between uh, what we see in the mass media and what we see on social media telling these stories. I remember I got a call on Friday night uh, from a student leader, UVA, who said to me, she was like, DeRay. And I met her when Martish Johnson was first, uh, when the story of Martish Johnson, Martish Johnson first happened at UVA and it wasn't anywhere in the news. Uh, there were a set of students who reached out to me who were like, can you help? And, and we did help bring attention to that story. Well, she called me on Friday night and she said, DeRay, they're white supremacy, There p- white people with torches on campus. And I was looking online and I like didn't see it anywhere. And I was like, are you sure? And she was like, yeah, no, I'm I'm seeing them right now. And I found two sort of reporters who were there who, whose tweets weren't getting any, any traction and helped amplify them because she had reached out and, uh, and, and so many other people were starting to talk about it. So uh, I remember that vividly from Friday night. And then we all saw across the country what happened uh, with the uh, person driving through a crowd of people and uh, one person uh, dying. And the two troopers, their helicopter, who they were monitoring the situation, their helicopter crashed, and we still don't know why that happened. So uh, that, just to open up the conversation, Brittany, Clint, Sam, would love to know your thoughts about what happened, how we got here, what we do?
4: So part of what I want to do is pull back a bit and get a sense of why Charlottesville became the epicenter of these protests in the first place, and the reason at least a large part of it, is that the city of Charlottesville is attempting to have the statue of Robert E. Lee removed. Uh, And so many of the Confederate sympathizers oppose this and are propagating these false narratives about the importance of, quote, you know, maintaining Southern heritage. And, and even if some of them don't say it like that, what they'll usually say is, oh, well, Robert E. Lee, he wasn't like the rest of the Confederates. He was actually just a really talented military strategist and devoted Christian, and he hated slavery, and he just got caught up in the the haze of secession. And he felt so loyal to the state of Virginia that he fought to protect them, but not necessarily to protect slavery. So we can celebrate Robert E. Lee without uh, venerating or celebrating the Confederacy, and and that 's a lot of bull, right that whole argument is ludicrous, and we know that because, as the general of the Confederate Army, the existence his his position was predicated on fighting to protect slavery it 's sort of inherent to the very fabric of his position and inherent to the very fabric of the war and so not only was he fighting to protect slavery, Robert E lee also. Own slaves himself, and so that often is something that gets lost in the the larger narrative but but this larger uh idea that we should sort of lift up uh different uh military strategists or different p- elements of the confederacy or the confederacy as a whole is like a very long and purposeful propaganda c- campaign that's happened over the last century and a half, and we've talked about it a little bit over the course of the last Maybe two months, um, especially after New Orleans removed so many of the Confederate monuments. Um, But in the sort of historical larger discourse, this is known as the lost cause. Um, And I wanted to bring – there's a letter that Robert E. Lee wrote in in 1856 that really pushes back against any notion that he was uh, not racist, that he was not – or that he was sympathetic to the condition of of, – enslaved black people and it says quote the blacks are immeasurably better off here than in africa morally socially and physically the painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction as a race and i hope will prepare and lead them to better things how long their subjugation may be necessary is known and ordered by a wise merciful providence and so this is the language of someone who clearly has uh Uh, a pathologized conception of who black people are, uh, who think that black people are intellectually, morally, uh, and socially inept and incapable of being full citizens um, of the United States or or being full human beings for that matter. And, and, you know, I think it's really important to sort of lay out the totality of who Robert E. Lee was because we get inundated, you know, and myself growing up in Louisiana, uh, you know, I remember my middle school... American history course and like being inundated with this sort of mythology and this lost cause uh, rhetoric about who Robert E. Lee was and what the sort of larger uh, aims of the Confederacy was and people suggesting that the Confederate uh, the Confederacy wasn't fighting to protect slavery or to maintain slavery and the Civil War wasn't about slavery. But as as we've discussed before and as many writers and activists have talked about before, it is it is simply ahistorical and disingenuous to to consider the civil war as being anything other than a war predicated upon the enslavement of black people. Because if you read the uh, declarations of secession from each of these states, when they left, they said, we are leaving because slavery is inherent to who we are as a people, and we do not want Abraham Lincoln to take our
2: slaves away. Wow. Thanks for bringing that in. You know, When you were talking about, Clint, when you were saying... You know, what you learn in high school, it really hit a chord for me because, you know, growing up in Orlando, Florida, uh, in my high school, we, you know, my, it was in 10th grade and it was AP U.S. history. And um, the teacher is this white lady and she spent that, the whole sort of civil war, run up to the civil war and civil war part, um, she was very intentional about trying to frame it as being something about everything other than slavery, um, it was about other economic concerns, she would say. Um, and just think about how many, you know, for me, I, I, I knew that that was wrong, but a lot of the kids there, like nobody was going to challenge that. Um, nobody did challenge it that year. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about how many kids sort of went off into the world thinking that that might've been true, um, when it wasn't right. And, and how many other classrooms across the country are actually teaching that same thing today. Um, And how those beliefs can factor into the minds of, you know, some of the white supremacists that we might have seen today, uh, or that we saw in in Charlottesville. Um, The second thing is around the statues. So, you know, with Robert E. Lee and, and the Confederacy, you know, the other big thing is that You know, still in our environment, there are so many different memorials and uh, ways to venerate uh, Confederates that you see in our everyday life, particularly in the South. I mean, you know, so just in my neighborhood growing up in Orlando, there was uh, Robert E. Lee Middle School. Uh, There was a statue to a Confederate soldier in the in the main park, Lake Eola Park, Um, and you know, Confederate flags. People would always have these on the back of their trucks driving around, and so. it really didn't hit me how sort of crazy that was until I went to Barbados um, last month. And the first thing that we saw when we got to Barbados was a huge statue uh, of of a man named Busa who led a slave revolt. Um, and, you know, it was a statue of a man breaking his chains. Um, and I've since learned, you know, on Twitter from people posting that that, in fact, is the norm and not the exception all across uh, the diaspora everywhere except for the United States. Um, you know, there are statues in Brazil and statues in Haiti and in Guyana, um, in Puerto Rico, uh, commemorating people who resisted, people who led uh, revolts uh, of enslaved people, people who fought back, uh, people who participated in liberation instead of oppression. And that just is not the case even to this day uh, here. And what that means in the minds of so many people um, Where that is a part of your environment and and who that empowers and and what you think about the world growing up in that context uh, informs the kind of debate that we're having today.
4: And I think what's important for people to remember is that in 1860, the 4 million slaves who were in the United States were worth more than all of America's manufacturing, all of the railroads, and all of the productive capacity of the United States combined. Wow. Wow. And I think it's really important for us to really hearken back on that and understand that we can't disentangle the quote unquote economics of why the Confederacy was uh, fighting the Civil War from the fact that slaves were the single most valuable
1: asset uh, in the mid 19th century. Wait, that isn't, let's just reckon with that for a second. That's, wild. That's incredible. You know, Trayvon Free, one of uh, the friends of the pod, he said that the Civil War was the original economic anxiety. And that, Clint, I never heard that before.
3: Well, and this is, you know, we've spoken about the iconography of hate before. Um, and in you know in previous conversations, maybe not on the pod, but especially when we were in times of very heavy protest, the complaint that we would hear from people was about the destruction of prop- property, right? And I remember DeRay, you being on the news after Freddie Gray was killed, reminding people that broken spines are more important than broken windows. Um, and yet when you trace back our history, um, in America, economic anxiety, so many of our anxieties have been about the protection of property, right? About only land owning men being the ones who had the right to vote in many colonies. Um, and then we have to reckon with the fact that people were property, right? That, that chattel slavery allowed the, the, um, creation of wealth through the ownership of people um in in the exact in the exact way that you're talking about uh right now clinton so i you know it's, it's so the the idea that we have to protect property irrespective of how racist it is that we own said property whether it's a person or um in in the current context the statue um has just been sitting with me especially as i've been like just reading some really foundational philosophical texts for people um, throughout history, far beyond America's beginning, um, stood fast on that principle. It also just reminds me of how ingrained these images are, how ingrained this iconography is. Dory, I don't know if you remember when we spoke a couple of years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and we asked folks where we should go get dinner. And everyone said, go to the Brady District, go to the Brady District. Well, we got to the Brady District and we had asked some friends of, of mine to give us a bit of a tour of what was left of Black Wall Street. There's a very small um plaque in the street of the people who, um of, of the Black folks who own businesses who at this point had, I think had yet to see or maybe have seen some kind of restitution. And then in John Hope Franklin Park nearby, there was, um um Uh, a statue erected there but it was adjacent to this entire neighborhood called the Brady Arts District and we found out that the Brady Arts District was actually named for Wyatt Tate Brady who um, not only was a member of the Klan but it was his house where they actually planned the destruction of Black Wall Street Um, and so this was maybe 2015 when we were having this conversation Uh, and what we found out was that because people were so tied to the name the Brady District instead of getting rid of it given its roots they decided that they would just tell people that it was named for matthew brady who is a civil war photographer Um, so people are so tied to the tradition of property the tradition of these names the tradition of this the the preservation of this particular legacy, which is one that, quite frankly, we should all be ashamed of. Um, And and this is happening all over the country. And it isn't until recently that we have en masse called for the removal of these icons.
1: You know, this makes me think, too, Brittany, of President Obama's uh, tweet condemning what happened in Charlottesville, uh, which he tweeted out a quote of Mandela that said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. What that makes me think of is how the guy who ran through the crowd of people that led to the the death of someone and the injury of so many other people uh, was a 20-year-old person who like, has grown up in a world where President Obama is really the only president he has ever functionally had um, that's young, you know, to like be this hateful to get in your car and just like drive through people. So what was interesting about seeing the the images of all the people in Charlottesville is like it wasn't like, you know, people have said for so long like you know this will just die out, right? There's like a generation of people who just like grew up racist when the country was in a different place and da da. And like it wasn't old people out there that I saw. It was like young people. It was like. You know, 20, 30 year old people. It was white men and white women out there in a way that like that is not the rhetoric that you normally hear about, like the who who is hateful. And like that is just so fascinating to me because like we're we're young, you know, like we're not that old for, for people to be this hateful.
2: So I also wanted to bring in how, you know, this is not sort of an isolated, you know, incident or something specific to Charlottesville. Uh, and that in many ways, the Ideology behind uh, those white supremacists that we saw uh, in Charlottesville is rep- is well represented within the broader uh, society and especially within the Republican Party. Um, so, a-, a couple of points. First of all, you know we saw the the terrible damage that was done um, by that the the white supremacist who got in that car and drove it at protesters, um, but you know. What's clear is that in many states just this year, um, legislation has been introduced and in some cases passed uh, that actually protects drivers from any type of liability uh, from if they hit protesters, right? And so you know, this is not – what's wild to me is that you have Repub- – these are all Republican-controlled states, states like North Carolina, uh, North Dakota, Texas, um, Tennessee, Florida – uh, where you have Republicans introducing bills uh, that are designed to protect and, and em- empower people, essentially, uh, to, to hit protesters, to be violent towards protesters. Um, and these bills were introduced in response to um, the no DAPL, no DAPL protests in North Dakota, in response to Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, and it just shows you that, you know, in many ways, what that individual did um, in the car is something that we see folks in who are legislators using their legislative powers uh, to essentially commit similar types of violence, right? Violence against folks, allowing violence to happen legislatively. Um, and I think that that is a broader conversation about how are institutions playing a role, uh, either in condoning and enabling uh, white supremacist violence uh, or in just refusing to do anything about it, right? Right. Um, and I think, you know, this we could talk about the ways in which institutions are intentionally uh, preventing black and brown folks from voting, uh, suppressing the vote. We could talk about, you know, even in healthcare care, uh, how denying people health insurance, denying people Medicaid in, in states where there are large black populations. Um, so this is a broader conversation that is not limited to sort of the white supremacists who showed up with with Tiki torches. Um, but is much broader to encompass the broader ideology uh, and beliefs and goals uh, of the dominant political party in this country. And we have to be able to address that as well.
3: I just want to acknowledge Heather Hare in her life and death um, for the way in which she stood up with her body and with real action. Um, this is uh, incredibly tragic, and and Sam, I, I appreciate you pointing out that um, the laws that permitted this and the culture um, that encouraged this kind of behavior have been longstanding, and in a lot of ways, were in response to the kind of demands for justice that have been happening all around this country um, for a while now. Um, I just want, but I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledged her.
1: Now, Brittany Sam Clint, uh, one of the things that uh, people ask often uh, in the aftermath of uh, tragedies like this that have resulted in the death of people, especially on the heels of white supremacy being so bold and open in a way that uh, so many people didn't think that we would see in our lifetime, which doesn't mean that we didn't know that racism existed, but tiki torches in the middle of the night is, is something that so many of us saw on, on TV or movies. Uh, there are a lot of people asking what what do they do in moments like this? And I'd love to know what you, what what you say to those people?
3: Joy, I'm really glad you asked that question. You know, right now it's really important that we take care of our spirits and take care of one another because watching this amount of terror every single day can do a lot to your psyche. But as we do that, it's also really important to reckon with this moment, um, and make sure that we learn from this moment, that we learn more and therefore do more to make sure we don't continue to uh, repeat the mistakes of our past. Um, it's part of the reason why if you have been online in the last few days, people have been very frustrated with the hashtag, this is not us, um, because they feel as though, and I think rightfully so, that idea really ignores the history of white supremacy and um, institutionalized oppression in this nation. And if we ignore our history, we're doomed to repeat it. So I want to offer a bit of a teachable moment. Um, I've been tweeting about this a little bit, but I wanted to elaborate with with an perhaps a more clear example, Um, you know, white supremacy is a system in this country. I'm not simply talking about individuals like the ones who marched in Charlottesville who are white supremacists or white nationalists. I am talking about a broad system of injustice based on race. Uh, That system benefits certain people and it, um, it destroys lives of other people. Um there's a really helpful graphic if you haven't seen it. You can Google white supremacy um, iceberg um, that that draws out this system of white supremacy beyond just what we see at the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is the neo-Nazi, the, the KKK, um, uh, the kind of march that we just saw in Charlottesville. But beneath that, um, there are ways in which every single day through policy, through culture, through personal and systemic interaction, people are perpetuating the system of white supremacy. Things like colorblindness, when we deny oppression, when we deny people access to proper healthcare or good housing, when we invalidate the experiences of people of color, when folks say it's just a joke or not all white people when a person of color wants to tell their truth. Eurocentric curriculum, like you referred to earlier, Clint, these are all ways in which that that system is continuously perpetuated. And so in answer to your question, Duray of what do we do now? The first thing we do is we honestly reckon with the fact that white supremacy is more than a tiki torch. Again, it is a system. And if we don't pay attention to that part of the iceberg that is underneath the water, we'll crash into it and not even have seen it coming. So, uh, you know, this to me is harkens back to what you were saying, Clint. Um, For so long, we've been walking past Confederate statues and monuments, never questioning um, who they were and why they were there and whether or not they belonged. That's the way that we were perpetuating covert um, white supremacy. And those are the kinds of things that we need to be taking real demonstrable action to change every single day.
2: And also to add around. You know institutions. You know specifically in the role that institutions play in perpetuating you know, white supremacy and institutional racism. You know when we look at the neo Nazis and you know the the white supremacists in Charlottesville, you know their ideology is not su- substantively different uh, from the ideology of sitting Congress members like Steve King in Iowa, people like you know Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and uh, Gorka and exactly. Miller. You know. That's the same ideology. The only difference is that uh, the people in positions of power actually have access to huge resources, access to a military, have access to policymaking powers that allows them to cause this type of damage at scale. One of the things that people can do is engaging uh, in the political process, whether it is by voting, whether it is through advocacy at every level of government, um, holding representatives accountable uh, to make sure that... People like this are no longer being elected. Policies like this are no longer being passed. And instead, we're passing things that actually can check institutional racism and white supremacy. Like, for example, in Oregon, they have a law where before any policy is passed, before any law is passed, uh, that is evaluated based on its impact that it would have on communities of color. So that every legislator is notified wh- if they vote on this bill, it would have a harmful impact on people of color. Um so we can think about how do we actually change the the type of incentives and information uh, and the people at the table so that these decisions are no longer being made in ways that are harmful to communities of color.
4: And I just want to make a quick point uh, to a, a point Sam brought up uh, about the relationship between the larger Republican Party and the sensibilities of the white nationalists who were in Charlottesville is that it's important to remember. I know a lot of the rhetoric from politicians and people in Charlottesville – um, and pundits has been, oh these were outsiders who came in to Charlottesville who don't represent the political disposition or sensibilities of uh, the citizens in Charlottesville or in Virginia, and we aren't like them they need to go back to where they came from get out and that's sort of what I've been hearing on the news but and and while many of these uh, young people and older people and the the uh, white nationalists may have Come from out of town. uh, It does not mean that Virginia is a place in which these sentiments aren't aren't ripe and don't exist in like a very meaningful way. And I think it's important that we remember that that the Republican candidate for governor, Corey Stewart, nearly won the Republican nomination in Virginia a few weeks ago. Uh, by predicating his campaign on the nostalgia of Confederate monuments and saying that if he is elected, he will not allow them to tear down these monuments.
1: It is interesting to, um, you know, Trump wouldn't just condemn the white supremacists, wouldn't say white supremacists. Uh, you know, it's interesting to see people like Ted Cruz call out white supremacists. That seems like, a, you know, that was surprising to me. It you know, I'm trying not to be cynical, but it does seem like a setup for, you know, some posturing uh, politically for him later. We've never heard this rhetoric from him. Um, So that was interesting. And, uh, you know, McAuliffe had a strong statement and so did the mayor of uh, Charlottesville uh, to in the aftermath.
3: You know, statements are one thing, but a lot of the GOP officials that put out stronger statements in the White House are still perpetuating the very policies that help white supremacy exist. So I'm less interested in a statement and more interested in some action.
2: Right, I mean, it's like name one policy that the Republican Party is pushing for that would not have a disproportionately negative impact on black communities and brown communities, right? It is not a a coincidence that every single one of their positions seems to be uh, exacerbating uh, the inequities that currently exist uh, by race. And I think that that is... That is the definition of white supremacy.
1: You know, Kamala Harris released a released a statement tonight that says, "I feel a special responsibility, and I hope and expect my colleagues in the U.S. Senate do too." It's easy to tweet that hate has no place in America, but no legislator should be allowed to be horrified on a Saturday and then vote to drag America backward on a Monday.
3: She better preach.
1: <laughs> That's real. There it is. And shout out to the incredible organizers at UVA, the incredible organizers in Charlottesville Absolutely. and the incredible citizens who who stood up in the face of in the face of hate. You know, we have been to so many, uh, so many protests and in, in, in so many situations where like you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And nobody uh, who was a counter protester who went there um, had any indication that a car was going to run through people. Right. People came out because they knew that they're on the right side of justice and they know that today, too. Uh, but it takes a, a different kind of courage and bravery to stand up to hate, uh, especially when it looks like it did uh, over the weekend. That's the news. And we'll see you back next week. Don't go anywhere. More politics of the people is coming. In the decades before the Civil War,
5: slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved.
1: Today to get ten percent off your first month, that's BetterHelp, H E L P. dot com slash people. Here's my conversation with Common, award winning rapper, actor, and activist. Okay, Common, thank you so much for being on Pod Save the People. It's great to talk to you again.
6: Peace. It's great to talk to you, Duray, and uh, thank you for having me on.
1: The last time I saw you was in uh, New York City when you were interviewing me. So it's tables turned.
6: I know, and it was during that interview it was like it was a great conversation. I felt like I was learning a lot and sharing a lot and getting to hear your voice and and what you think was very important um to to me like progressing and, and learning and growing. So thank you. I'm glad now that the tables are turned, but I mean, I still feel like I'm going to learn in this interview anyway.
1: Yeah. So before we start talking about some of the more recent work that you're doing around criminal justice reform, um, I'd love to talk about like what you think the artist's responsibility is in a moment like this, where so much is at stake where there's such public conversation about these issues in ways that we have frankly not seen in our generation or our lifetime. Um, what do you say to people who say to you that like, this just isn't your role, right? That you should sing, that that should be what you do, that, that you should leave the policy up to the people who do this full time or that you need to stay in your lane. What do you say to those people?
6: I feel like I believe that the artists, their role is to be a voice for the policy changes, for the people, for those that are experiencing the struggle. It is 150% our duty as artists to use our platforms and voices and these microphones and our thought process to inspire people, to give people um, information, to do it in a way that's fresh because otherwise sometimes they won't, receive it, and I'm talking about the art aspect of it, but as far as activism, this is our responsibility. You're given a platform. You're giving a gift. You're given an influence on millions of people across the globe. It's no way that you should just make it about you. It just can't just be about you, and I think speaking up for, for social issues and speaking up for—in resistance— and for things, just speaking out against injustice is just is what we should be doing. It's just simple as that. That's It's our duty.
1: And how did you, you know, most of us more, more re, I mean, we grew up on your music, so, you know, we know those songs. And But most of us most recently uh, think about Selma, think about the 13th music that you've contributed to, soundtracks that you've been awarded for. And I know that you guys are, you're up for an Emmy with, um, with the music in the 13th, but how did you get, how did you get drawn to those? Products? How did you end up doing music for, uh, for the 13th and for Selma?
6: Well, I, I was cast in Selma as James Bevel. And from that experience, I just, it changed my life because along with something we were just talking about the for me, I need to make sure we cover is, the artist's job is not only just to, to speak on it, it's to do now. Like, we've been in an era where we've seen an era where artists have spoke up for, for culture and for people. And a lot, even at that time, were, were activists. But now we have to really be active in our communities and be active towards political change. Well, Selma really put that fire in me because I, I got to see, yeah, I've been, like you said, for years creating music that was uplifting and inspiring and and revolutionary and in the tone of it and the spirit of it. But, and I had my foundation and different things I was doing, but there was a next level that needed to be done for my work, for the work that I should be doing. And the recognition that I received, it was time for me to go to the next level. And Selma was that, that catalyst Just seeing, uh, studying the lives of people of the civil rights movement and How everyday people just stood up and went out and protested and marched, you know, like yourself, like what you did and what you continue to do. So that took me to that level of wanting to do more work and seeking out and and politically educating myself. And I'm still in that process. But then, you know, that developed a great bond with Ava DuVernay, who's directed Selma and directed the film 13th. And I had, you know, I actually had to like say it. Ava, could I please write a song for 13th? <laughs> because I knew it was about mass incarceration. I knew it was about mass incarceration. I was like, Ava, I'm really, this is in my soul. This is in my heart. I've been reading the new Jim Crow, and please. And she said, submit a song. And I wrote the song, Letter to the Free, with um with Robert Glasper and Kareem Riggins producing and is featuring Bilal. And I felt we just wanted to capture the spirit of what the struggle for black people have been. And throughout this, Throughout slavery, throughout Jim Crow, up to mass incarceration, including black and brown people when it comes to mass incarceration. So we wanted to capture that spirit and make sure that we created something that was inspiring and also like gave people a, 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 a like really generated them to do or created something for them to feel like they can go out and, and be active and change.
1: Now, you're from Chicago, right?
6: Yes, yeah, south <laughs> side. Yeah. Yes sir. <laughs> that, that's is great. <laughs> that's great.
1: Um how does how does being from Chicago a place where people uh where people don't often say positive things about in in the mass media or the mainstream media. People in Chicago obviously love Chicago uh but they talk about it's criticized for being a city with Uh, So many issues, drugs, crime, you know, I'm from Baltimore, so I know what it's like to be from a city that people uh, in the, in the mainstream don't say positive things about, but how has that influenced your art at all? When you think about these structural issues like uh, mass incarceration or police violence or a set of other issues with regard to race?
6: Well, Chicago is a very segregated city and, being from the South side, I really was raised just amongst Black culture. And that gave me a sense of who I am, a sense of pride and and love for my people. And it also made me want to do more for, for my people because I, I saw us going through the struggle. And when it comes to dealing with police brutality and and mass incarceration, because I experienced it firsthand, dealing with police officers who obviously looked at me as a young black man and just never treated me with respect. Dealing with friends and, and family members who have been in prison and feeling like that's a norm until I realized that that was part of a sy- systemic thing created that was called mass incarceration, but it started with the war on drugs and, you know, it was, a, it was a long history to it. But I wasn't informed of that, but I understood that because I lived amongst it. But the positive and beautiful things of growing up, it is it's something about being black in Chicago or Baltimore that, that teaches you about community, teaches you about family, teaches you about love and spirituality, um, that that I gained a great foundation, music and art, food, all those beautiful things, the block club parties, those are the things <laughs> that gave me a sense of like, yes, this is this is me. I'm 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 this black man in this world and I'm proud to be this this black man in this world. So Chicago provided me a lot of beautiful things and I saw enough ugly to feel like I can help be part of the solution. And I wanted to to be and I'll continue to want to be part of the solution.
1: And what is it what does it mean to you to be a father uh, in this moment where there seems like there's so much at risk, right? Where we see things like Charlottesville Happen uh, where white supremacy is on display in a way that we had heretofore seen in movies. And though that we though we knew racism still existed. You have a a daughter. Um,
6: yeah, she and, just turned twenty years old. My daughter t- turned twenty years old. Oh wow! August I
1: didn't 13. know she was that old.
6: Yes, well, <laughs> yes, brother. Uh, I mean, what does it mean for me? Is is doing my best to equip her with as many tools to be the best human being possible. Um, she she was raised in, in different cities, New York City, born in Chicago, raised in, partially in New York, and then came to L.A. So her identity had to come through, through her parents and just me and her mother. And her mother helped provide an incredible foundation, and, and I did my best to provide an incredible foundation of her knowing who she is. But what it means for me is teaching her, telling her, about being a good human being providing her a chance to 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 live out her life and grow because for a second I s- stepped back and said she has to experience these certain things I'm I, I took more of the step back approach and now it's like I have to be more involved you know as, a, as I have to be more involved than ever because I need to talk to her and talk things through and it's important that I just really just give her a sense of self And a security as a father to let her know that she has the love and that she has the foundation and the protection that will be there. But to go out and just be a great human being is the biggest thing that I try to instill in her.
1: Now, what do you say to people, though, who 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 have believed for so long, right? And then they see something like Charlottesville where a guy runs through, takes his car and runs through a crowd of people where white supremacists are openly carrying guns, have stockpiles of weapons uh, in the street. I just talked to the Governor Governor McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia last night, um, about, about this issue too. What do you say to people who, who have believed in God, who have voted their entire lives and who have been in the street and nothing has changed? Like, how do you how do you tell those people to still have hope in a moment like this
6: well i think we have to look and see that some things have changed it's it's like the issue that of racism is still there but we have progressed in other ways we have progressed in other ways and we have to acknowledge those ways and focus on those ways and and when you see the, the racism and the hatred that we've just seen in Charlottesville know that' that's, that's not what God created us to be or this country to be. That's the opposite of God, right? So we can't really we can't really say, "Oh man, well, I've been believing for forever. Belief is is a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong commitment, and that belief has to understand that it's going to be suffering, it's going to be trials. But those are the things that bring out the best in all of us if we choose to. And I think it's just up to us to realize, yo, it's always going to be some evil in this world. <laughs> you know, it's always going to be that. But how do we rise above it and figure out ways to rise above it and focus on, because our country has progressed. We have progressed as as people, but we still have some of the same some of the same like craziness that existed is obviously there. And we always we have to acknowledge that like um, America needs to acknowledge it. We need we act like this just came to the like, man, where did this come from? As you said before, we all know it existed. And and for a second, you know, all of us got a little felt a little like, man, we got our first black president. and We should have felt that joy. But as we seen right in, in during his terms, it was a lot of black people still being killed um a lot of jobs that 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 weren't being brought to the black communities education and it wasn't because our president it's just <laughs> some of it was just the system itself and 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 the resistance that he was getting but but that being said i i have to look at what's going on in the world and 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 know that that's not of of righteousness of god that's not really you know what the world should be or created is created to be and we got to focus on what is created to be
1: now let's transition to talk about imagine justice your initiative around criminal justice reform can you talk about what what is it and then um i'm really interested in what have you learned since you have started to become more immersed in in trying to help us think about solutions to uh, ending mass incarceration
6: i've been learning a great deal. And, and, and the beauty of this, the is the fact that this kind of started on this, the Oscar stage when John legend said it's more, it's more black men in prison right now that were enslaved in 1850. I looked over and was like, whoa, I didn't know that. And somehow like the, the next, Project that I was doing was this documentary dealing with mass incarceration. I got assigned to that part. I was a producer on it. I got assigned to that part. Well, my education, obviously, doing, doing this documentary, I got to sit down with Michelle Alexander. I sat down with Kim Fox, who is is our state's attorney in, in Illinois. So I started to learn. I actually went to the Cook County Jail um, and talked to the deputy there. The warden, deputy warden there, and, and and I was getting a lot of information, and then thirteenth came, and I wrote a letter to the free, and I was like, I have to learn more and do more, so that next level, for me, I connected with this, this brother, this this brother named Scott Butnick. He's um, he has a, a organization called ARC, which is Anti Recidivism Coalition, and he had been talking to me for like ten years about going to visit prisons. He would bring Former, in, formerly incarcerated individuals to our shows. We were doing rock the bells. I would meet the brothers and sisters. It was dope. But he said, "Come visit," and I was like, "Okay, I will one day." But at this point in my life, after rapping about it, talking about it, being more in proximity of what was going on, I I decided I needed to do something about it. So I, I'm politi- I'm What I'm learning is we went into four prisons in California. We went to Calipatria. We went to CIW, which is the women's prison. We went to Ironwood and we went to Lancaster. We sat and just listened and talked to individuals. And what I learned is a human being should not be trapped in one act that they committed for the rest of their lives. A human being should within the, the criminals or the prison system be allowed a chance to rehabilitate and correct themselves. A, a young adult, like when you're 16 and 17 years old and you're committing crimes, and, and mind you, I'm talking to people who committed double murders and, and took responsibility for it and we're calling out the names of the people they killed. That's how much reverence and, and change that they were having in their lives. They, you can't be trapped in that act for the rest of your life you know it's got to be some type of rehabilitation for you and it's i met individuals i was awakened by talking to them i like the way i really learned a lot by talking to, to the individuals i met in prison and and felt their humanity even from somebody who had who had murdered individuals
1: And was that different it was, just a, was that different than what you'd experienced like when you had thought about prisons and jails through the lens of the mass media? Was there something fundamentally different about actually being there? And if so, what was it?
6: Well, it was, okay. It wasn't, I, my vision of prison wasn't really only from the mass media, to be honest. It was, I had friends who had committed some crimes that I definitely went to prison to visit. I had an uncle who was in jail when I was really young. I don't actually remember visiting, but my mother took me to visit. So I had had some interaction, but it was always my my process is like, man, you did something, you're about to serve this time and again get out. But I wasn't thinking about the human being and, and the development of the human being while being incarcerated and the and that person not being thrown away. It was like I going into the prisons and talking to individuals let me see it from another perspective because I'm inside talking with individuals who are saying, this is what I've experienced, this is what I'm going through, and having a, like, just a a bright conversation that uh, where they show so much humanity and understanding. I was like, man, these individuals I'm meeting is not like where you just just say, all right, man, you committed a crime, you in jail. These are people that have said, man, I I really— made a a bad decision, a bad mistake that cost somebody their life. And I want to correct that. And I don't want other individuals to go through that. And while I'm in here, I need people outside to know I'm a human being. For me, it was about understanding that these human beings are being treated less than human beings. Hmm. And that always hurts my heart. It hurts my soul. It makes me want to fight harder. And that's why, that's why I do what I do now because when I see people being treated less than human beings, I fight no matter where it is. And my fight now is: Imagine Justice is about getting some of these policies changed, getting some programs put into the prisons, giving people hope. Hope was the big like we we call this this whole thing Imagine Justice. It's a hope and redemption tour because we want to instill hope back into some of the people. And when I, pe- I performed at these prisons too, when I performed, man, it was people that was like saying to us after the show, like, man, we forgot we were in jail. We forgot we were in prison, man. And I had never been to a concert. And they, they were saying all type of things that just let me know, man, you haven't experienced life. You haven't been treated like a human being and understand. They, they were saying things to me like, yo, can we, we need mental health like programs in the cities for for kids. They understood like, cause it was, I remember one, one guy just came from, you know, he had been moved around in foster homes. He was like, man, I was never able to develop a foundation to be a, a good citizen. So that type of understanding is what I received by going to these prisons. And, and I got to say, as much as I thought I was given, I was receiving so much. And it's been a life enhancing experience for me. And I think When we talk about what are we going to do in this day and age when, you know, you, you have the government that ain't we even got to discuss the government because we know what they about. Right. (laughs) I'm talking about on the federal level, what they're not about. Right. Right. We know what they're not about and we know what they are about. Right. So that's, that's like, that's a given, but what are we going to do to be a part of like shifting the paradigm and changing things? Well, for me, Prison reform has become one thing, but I've always been about education, too. You know, I've always been about our youth and giving them opportunities to dream. But it's all tied in because if we don't give our, our shorties a chance to to dream and to see something and to feel like they are something, then they sometimes end up in, in this cycle of prison, uh, the cycle of mass incarceration. So,
1: And imagine, Justice, it is it like an organization that people can join? Is it uh what is it for people?
6: It's actually an event. Uh, it's an event that, and, and we're performing at the Capitol of, in Sacramento of California on August twenty first. Myself, J Cole, um, Guapale, and 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 some other artists too. I'm actually hopefully talking to Nas, I want him to do the song One Love. If that would be really dope. But anyway, we 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 inviting people to come and support and come see this performance, and basically having them sign up to be a part of. The policy change, the bills that are up for it's its a couple of bills that are up for like to become laws that could be like really helpful towards prison reform and criminal justice reform, which is one is like young adults not being sentenced to life without parole in the state of California or adolescents being sentenced to life without parole. Another is a bail reform bill, which is not already it's not all settled yet, but its it's in the process. And that is something else that we we want to work out, you know, because, you know, obviously poor people don't sometimes have a chance to get out of jail, and end up still end up um, being in jail for for like months, sometimes years, just because you don't have the money.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Now, what do you say, what advice do you give to young artists who are saying, you know, I look up to you, Common. I see that you have used your platform not only to spiritually sort of motivate people of color with your music, but also to use your resources uh, to fight for structural change. And, and they don't know where to start. They feel overwhelmed by the problem itself. What do you say to those people?
6: And I say, look, I don't first of all, I don't know everything I'm learning. As the process goes, we all starting from somewhere and something has driven us to to want to do something. If you want to do something, that's the that's the biggest thing. The next thing is going out and identifying what what affects you, what affects you, meaning like what do you want to see change? Like what? Within, like When I went to Baltimore and just filmed, we filmed this this piece called Black America again in Baltimore. And one of the I, I had to use <laughs> I Had to use the bathroom, and I walked into this woman's house. We were right at the at a location where they had, where the police had picked up Freddie Gray, and I went into this woman's house and you we, guys I was were talking around, with her. You're
1: like around you, Sandtown, Winchester. Yeah, yes. z-
6: Sandtown. Yes. yes, and I went into her house and and it was you know it was a tough situation. Poor, you know, it was a poor neighborhood. She, I said, "What can we do to help?" Because we out here filming. What can we do to help? She said just ask if we can get the trash picked up. You said she said you see all this 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 all this trash built up right over here. Like that me coming home to that every day does not make me feel good. It, it, I don't feel like I'm in an environment that where we love our environment. It's just simple things. So that I'm saying that to say you as an artist you can pick something very simple. And it starts, you know, to be honest, it starts with us. Like saying, I'm going to be part of it. I'm going to change my perspective and do some things, put some things out there that mean something in the world. And even if, you know, you still kick, you still like rapping songs, that you know, just party, whatever. You still might want to say something that means something. Or go out and identify what you are going to change. It could be helping out the educational system. It could be helping out the environment, helping out, the people, that, the injustices that you see going on, figuring out what politicians in on the state and local level that you can support and building some community like organizations or uh, or supporting community organizations that are doing that work. It takes some work to get there. It definitely takes work. But and we and honestly, I seek out political education. That's why I told you the from the beginning, like I'm I listening and I learn when I talk to you, I listened. And I learned and, and we're gonna always learn, and I tell the young artists man, just keep learning I tell them that just even on the level of making music, just keep learning so of course I'm gonna tell them that as we go into activism and and it's all it takes is one step you want to do it and then identify the thing that you want to change
1: and do you ever do you ever um, so before I ask this, what I will say is that what's important about that is that, is that sometimes we forget that this is about asking people what they need and then responding to that, right? And like with the example that you have in Baltimore, uh, my, my hometown is, uh, is a great example of that. Is that like we can go in, we can be in places and think that we know what the biggest, the most important thing for them is. And then you ask them and it's like something different sometimes. And that's like actually like a key aspect of what it means to be an ally, that an ally is invited, that like an ally is asked, uh, what they need, and now I ask somebody like what they need and then responds to it. The second thing that I ask, though, is um, what do you say to people who are afraid of speaking up because they might lose their insert here, right? So you think about Colin, who Colin spoke up or didn't speak, you know, pun intended, uh, and because of the National Anthem and that it seems that his career is really suffering because of it. So what do you say to people who see who see Colin and they're like, you know what? I believe in the cause. I think it's right. I have a platform, but I don't want that to be me. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that as somebody who has an incredibly big platform, has a successful career, but it's safer for you to, to make party music than it is for you to try and fight the system.
6: Yeah. Well, first I want to say is, is very important. What you said about going in and, and when we go in asking what people need and that's, my whole approach that's how we build as you said allies and it's and it's really just connecting with the people and it becomes we you empower people when you listen and and they are part of the solution and i really appreciate you saying that and think that that's a a big key so i want to definitely like support that and and state that again um now as far as people who, who may be like wondering ah, man, I, I might lose my job. I might go, you know, I, I could lose this money, which is what I used to survive. I, I have to say, man, you got to put a trust in your belief. And my whole career has been based on my faith. And faith has to, to precede the money, even like what what you might think, Will be your survival because you will be able to find a way and align yourself with something that will be aligned with your, with your thoughts, with your mentality. And you don't have to sacrifice who you are and what you believe in to survive. And I'm saying that saying if Colin, Colin Kaepernick will go down as, in history as one of the most important figures to ever play football, not because he won the Super Bowl not because he was the MVP and took, took, t- took home three rings, but it's because of what he stood for during this day and age and how strong he stood and how intelligent and how courageous he was. That courage, I know that courage might not necessarily put food on your table, but it will give you the, the sense of pride and, and the fulfillment as a, as a human being more than anything, any award anything can give you. And I just say we have to be courageous in this time, and it it has to be a selflessness that you is is you could lose some things, but but look at the things that you'll gain. Because one thing I know is I can't go home and know that I sold out my people or sold out people, sold out myself. I can't like it's a pain in living like that, and that that's something that I think you know. In all truth, I think. The people living out there with hatred in their hearts is living in the pain, and none of us want to live like that. So, us using our courage and us using our mouthpieces and our and our beliefs and our dollars to support what we want to support is worth it. I mean, I can't I can't help but think like that because my hero and one of my heroes is Muhammad Ali, and I told Colin Kaepernick, you know, he's a he's a hero for me at this point to, to to put himself on the line like that, his whole career. And I think now we, we're we seeing, and I'm in full support of people standing up for Colin and saying, man, I'm not even going to support what the NFL is doing. Like if, if these owners are not like going to, and the NFL is not going to give this brother a chance, which we know he's, Fully qualified to be an NFL quarterback, then we then we need to not support. Then we need to protest in our own ways by not giving our dollars. So, I think we seeing more and more when people standing up, you getting more people to support you than than you would think.
1: That makes sense. Where can people go to find more information about Imagine Justice?
6: Well, we have a. Uh, you can definitely go to my. Instagram at, at Common, or um, and also my Twitter at Common, but also Imagine Justice. We have an Imagine Justice um, website, and also Imagine Justice. We have an Imagine Justice Instagram. So, but you know, you definitely will be able to find information continuously on on my Instagram and and on my Twitter at Common.
1: Comment now. I, I did want to ask this just because I'm so curious. I interviewed Tracy Ellis Ross, who is amazing, and I asked her yes. too. Um, you know, you became you became famous way before the internet was like what it is today. You know, and way before social media was was what it was what it is today. So I'd love to know, like, what is that? What is that like? Like, you've you know you you now you get a lot of feedback about every single thing you do, whether you want the feedback or not on every yeah. platform and before you know i think about love my life like you know we couldn't tell you that we there was no way for me to to like send Common a message being like this song is so great um <laughs> what is or i hate this song you know wh- what is yeah. it like to to have been famous before and now to be famous now
6: well i, th- I think doing at least definitely as an artist and creator it, it allowed us to create from a purer place because we weren't influenced by someone we didn't know saying, man, I don't like this. Uh, and I want you to do something more like what you did in the past. Those things, as much as you don't want them to, they they seep into your, into your, your soul. You like sometimes can influence you. Um, I, I remember like first getting into the internet and Quest Love from the Roots, we were going on to to their um, OK player. This is like, <laughs> this is two thousand, <laughs> right? And, and we went in, we went, and he was like, we went to a chat room and he, and we were listening. They they and a lot of people were coming back saying, "Man, you sh- you all should do this. I want something like I had an album called Resurrection. We want stuff like Resurrection and this, and and Love was." paying attention to it and then I said yo I'm Amir man don't forget man we are the leaders like we have to lead by our art and, and the truth that we know and what we want to create and then let the people be they can judge and say I don't want to support this I do want to support it like we can't let them start determining what we create because then you become a caterer to the audience and you don't know what that audience is if that audience is truly giving you what they really feel or or if they're going to move on to the next. So I think one of the best things you can do and the best things that we were able to do in that era was just create from a pure place without having as many voices. Because I use that same example you just said. I was like, man, I was never able to tell Michael Jackson, man, you should create this. <laughs> or I-, I can tell like KRS-One from Boogie Down. But the, man, I didn't like that. My my way of supporting it was go to the performances, and that was another thing. A lot of interaction was face to face. I have to tell you, I, I actually, and it and it was it was impactful because I can tell you a story about, in, in some of my earlier songs, I used to use the word like use words that that could be taken as anti you know gay like they, and I remember having a show. And these these two dudes came up to me and was like, Common, we two gay dudes, man, and we love you. But when you say this word, fag, that hurts us. And I was like, wow, it just affected me in a way where I, I never used the word again. But I grew up around that word, and that was just a word we would say derogatory to each other no matter what. It didn't have to even anything. Well, it did have some things to do with that, but I I didn't even know the the core of how it could hurt somebody. Really. I mean, I was using it just to talk a little stuff to the to the homies. But point blank, I'm using this example because this is an example of the interaction that I had face to face with somebody that really changed my life now. I don't think if somebody was coming at me on a computer saying <laughs> saying like, man, you, you know, I don't know if I would receive it the same way. And and I'm just saying those interactions, face to face human connection were, were really valuable. And I still cherish them now. And I still, you know, respect and understand that some people, we get our voices out through social media. But I think it's also important, important that we balance it with the connection of, if we can, face-to-face, going out and supporting, putting our bodies and and and, and hearts in the space. And that that's why protest is important. That's why activism is important. And as well as Tweeting is important and and Instagramming and, and letting people know what your voice is saying. But to put your body in the space and put your mind in, in the space and get into proximity of what's going on is very, very important.
1: Now, uh, one of the questions uh, I get a lot from people is um, you know, there are a lot of white people trying to figure out what what can they do? Right. Or like, how should they think about this moment? I think that what we've seen over the past three years is that uh, there's been a resurgence of of Uh, black organizing and and black activism. We've also seen white people come out and say that they want to, uh, that they want to do something and people are trying to figure out what to do. What do you say to white people who are like, common, I, you know, I get it. The system is screwed. I want to help out.
6: Well, I, I mean, I think Charlottesville was a, was a really good example of, I mean, when you think about it, it was a lot of white folks out there protesting, which was strong. Um, I think white people have to do some of the same things that I just said that we all need to do. Identify some things that you need that you know need to be changed and if you're not in proximity of it and not haven't been acquainted with it, you got to get out of your get get up off your ass and get to somewhere where you can know what's going on and and not be passive, not be like oh man did you see what happened to that to the young gentleman to, did you see what happened to Alton Sterling you see what happened to Sandra Bland you see what happened to this young brother just the i don't know if you saw the images but but his his name is DeAndre Harris who was getting beat by f- five white men um this young brother in Charlottesville just getting beat with sticks poles like once you see that you got to figure out I have to, this has to be nonstop. The same way we work towards pursuing our careers, giving love to our families. We have to make sure that we are doing stuff beyond just us, our little circle. I had a friend of mine text me and said, man, I'm, well, I'm not being, none of of my friends were were lost in, in, in what happened in Charlottesville. And this is, I was like, man, how can you even think like that? Like this is we got to think like anything that happens. So this is to to white folks and to all folks, <laughs> but white folks like anything that happens with black people. Man, it affects you. If you if black people are being pushed down, if Latino people are being pushed down, if Muslim people are being pushed down, transgender people or whomever uh, are being pushed down, it's, it affects you. We all. Are connected in some way or another, and it's like if you're living in a house and somebody in that house is not be is being treated bad, it's it's going to erupt at some point, and it's going to end up affecting you. And America is the house we live in, so if somebody is is being pushed down, if you don't do anything to help raise them up and give them an equal playing field, it's going to affect you. We all connected, and we'll be connected till we leave this planet or the planet is gone. So we got to just Stand up the same way, I just said we gotta stand up DeRay, and and i'm and I'm speaking for our Latino brothers and sisters, you know our Asian brothers and sisters, our the white brothers and sisters, and the native brothers and sisters. We gotta all stand up, but white folks you, you the white people out there have work to do just like we do, and you gotta be even more aggressive and and strong in it
1: common. I appreciate you coming. That was helpful for white people to listen to. Um, and I just appreciate you being able to talk about the intersection of art and activism in a moment where there is so much at stake and we are all trying to figure out the best way to make sure that we change the system. I think that we've all been successful in helping to change the conversation, which is a first step. But one of the things I remind everybody is that protest uh, is not the answer. Protest creates space for the answer. And that in this moment, we are uh, working
6: to, to fill in that space. Yes, sir, DeRay. Well, thank you, man. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for having me on here. And, um, you know, I'm being tuned with you, brother. God bless you. I appreciate it. Hey, you're listening
1: to Potsy of the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform. It's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at madeincookware.com.
7: Introducing our show, the Tema American Reshoring ETF, the pioneer in investing in America's infrastructure revival and beyond. Invest in the companies we've identified as leading and benefiting from this industrial resurgence today. Visit us online, temaetfs.com. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus, available at TemaETFs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC.
1: And now, my conversation with Nathaniel Perlman of the Resistance Dashboard. So, Nathaniel, thanks for joining today to talk about the Resistance Dashboard, uh, which is an incredible tool for people to figure out what to do and how to do it. Before we talk about that, can you talk about your initial foray into uh, politics by founding the NGP software?
8: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, back in 1997, I started a software company called, at the time, NGP Software, now called NGP Van. It uh, it's now the uh, technology backbone of the Democratic Party. It was a. Uh, it was a. Company that I started in the attic; that it was me alone for two and a half years, and uh, grew quite a bit to be about a two hundred person enterprise now.
1: And what when you say it's the backbone of the Democratic Party's data system, what does that actually mean in practice? I know a little bit about it because I ran for mayor, so we use NGP
8: Van is what it's called today. Um, But what does it? What does it do? Well, it does a whole lot of things. One thing it does is manage lists. So if you are running for office and you are fundraising and you have to fill out federal election commission reports or state election commission reports or track your contributors or your volunteers, all of that's in there. It's also connected to the VAN, which manages the voter file for each state party. And so all the candidates uh, share their access to that voter file data. And so all the canvassing and voter contact is managed there. So it also connects to uh, websites for uh Managing all of your contribution flow and other distributed campaign tools, so it's it's quite a suite of tools at this
1: point. Got it. And since then, you have worked on campaigns, you've advised many Democrats, uh, but in this moment of a Trump presidency, you started or helped lead
8: the Resistance Dashboard. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? So right now, it's two things. One, uh, after the election, a lot of my friends were asking me, uh, how much should I worry about what's going on? You know, this seems Really unusual in politics to have a guy like this elected. And so what I started to do is to track visually on a bunch of different dimensions how much, what was going on? What, what kind of, uh, moves was he making ideologically in terms of social justice, in, term, in terms of democracy, in terms of conflict of interest, in terms of, uh, foreign policy, environment, things like that. And so if you go to that site, you can see. Some of the ups and downs, the big events, and and sort of how we've decided uh, things are moving. I also started to place onto it a lot of information about groups that are springing up or had been around for a long time, which are working on the resistance. Well, what can you tell us about the podcast recently? And and what I'm very excited about right now is we added a podcast of our own to it called The Great Battlefield, where I've been talking to what I'm calling political entrepreneurs, people who've started up uh, groups or sites or building new technologies or will taking lots of different actions to fight what's been going on from this administration and the right wing of the Republican Party. And one of those people that I interviewed is Sam, who I believe is part of your show.
1: Yes, yeah, Sam's amazing.
8: And what's the website
1: actually that people should go to?
8: It's resistancedashboard.com. And if you go in the upper right, there's a button for the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm on it now. Now, what led you to create the, the dashboard? Like, what was the impetus behind it? Did you feel like there wasn't a central repository? Uh, was it because you thought the metrics weren't in one
8: place but should be? Like, what was the what's the what behind it? I think I think what was behind it was one. Uh, what can I offer? I have a, a real interest in visualizing data. And about, and a lot of interest in the politics of this time and and things like that. So I thought, can I sort of track visually what's going on? I wanted to do something. So, you know, I thought maybe I can, maybe I can turn something on technologically that will be a place where people go to see how much they should worry, to maybe start to participate, to see what other groups are out there and, and to, to get engaged.
1: And what can people do when they visit it to take action? How can this be a tool that actually pushes people to change the conditions that we live in? What's your what's your thoughts there? And what do you tell people who are like, what can I do?
8: What I've done is try to draw attention to other people's tools. So there is a a directory of tons of organizations, including, you know, uh, I think the the key organizations that are part of the resistance right now, which you can which anyone who comes to my site can explore and see what actions they are recommending. I, you know, I didn't want to just add one more tool. I wanted to be more of a directory of the possibilities. So I'm hoping that people will come uh, to resistance dashboard and, and visit our podcast. And I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Cool.
1: Well, thanks so much Nathaniel, for joining us today and everybody check out resistance Well, that's it. Thanks so much for listening to Pod Save the People this week. Make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend. See you back next week.
0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform. It's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.
7: Introducing our show, the Tema American Reshoring ETF, the pioneer in investing in America's infrastructure revival and beyond. Invest in the companies we've identified as leading and benefiting from this industrial resurgence today. Visit us online, temaetfs.com. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus, available at TemaETFs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foreside Fund Services, LLC.